Today I'll be preaching from verses 1 through 6. I'll read that today. Listen to God's word. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. Title my sermon today, Semper Fidelis. You may be wondering why I've titled it that. Semper Fidelis is the, uh, the motto of the U.S. Marine Corps. It means always faithful. Today's passage tells of a distressing end of one King Saul who ran a race faithless to the end, but it also has a glorious story to tell, a story of Jonathan, who was faithful to the end. It is a tragedy, the end of Saul's life and the lives of his sons as they were killed in battle. It's an event that is filled with grief, as we will see that touches on a troubling circumstance of one who takes his own life. It's it's an account that also mirrors something that happens earlier in the book of 1 Samuel. The very beginning of the book, we read about the Philistines invading Israel and defeating them in a resounding defeat. They captured the Ark of the Covenant The priests of God, Eli and his two sons, all died on the same day. It was a day of Ichabod. The glory has departed. So too, the end of Saul's life and of his dynasty was an inglorious day. And yet, there is glory to be found. Glory in one who is faithful to the end will lead us to consider the role of faith in a believer's life. By faith, you overcome. God will enable you to be faithful to the end. Therefore, look to Jesus now and always. But we begin with Saul. Saul, who was faithless to the end. There's been something of a back and forth in these last chapters of 1 Samuel. Back and forth between the scenes that are 
about Saul and the distress that he was in, and then shifting over to see what was happening simultaneously with David and of how the Lord was humbling him and bringing him to express uh, faith in new and restored ways. And there's a, a way that this happens that is, a, is intentional, it seems, by the author's, uh, author's assembly of this story. It intends to give us this contrast so that we can see David and his perseverance in faith, even though humbled because of his sins. And on the other hand, Saul who is also sinful but faithless and of God's judgment against him. The last time we saw Saul, he was leaving the house of the witch of Endor. Just as a reminder, since that was a couple of chapters before and uh, and, uh, over a month has gone by since we looked at this, I want to remind you that he had gone there to the witch to seek a way out of the disaster that he saw coming. But he did not seek that from God. He turned to a witch. He turned to the forces of darkness to try to seek some way out. He demanded her to consult the dead for him, a demand that was met with the appearance of the ghost of Samuel. Saul was terrified about what was about to happen. He was terrified by the appearance of Samuel. He was terrified by the word that Samuel brought to him. Since his searching was not a searching of faith, since his searching did not contain repentance, the only message that Samuel gave to Saul was a message of doom. The Lord's judgment that had been pronounced against him previously by Samuel within his life. That judgment that was prefigured by the Lord taking his spirit away from Saul, that judgment is coming to an end. For tomorrow, Samuel says, tomorrow you, Saul, will die, your sons with you, and your armies. Note that the Lord had been patient. The Lord had been merciful. He had withheld this very judgment that Saul deserved over and over again. There are numerous occasions where where this could have happened. There is a patience with the Lord and his stance towards the wicked that, that, uh, that, that... describes that God is indeed merciful and patient towards all. The New Testament even describes him as willing that all would come to repentance. But while the Lord often withholds his judgment for a time in this life, he will not remain silent forever. So the day of payment had come for Saul, the day of judgment. And there wasn't anything Saul could do about it. So Saul left the witch consumed by fear 
and bound by duty and duty alone to go and to fight and to die. I commented before about how distressing of a figure Saul is. This is a good time to wrap that up because we've noted that Saul is surrounded by the means of grace. He's raised in the covenant community. He is he he has the word of God in the law and the prophets. He has God's own spokesman Samuel that is there to guide him and to instruct him. He has all of those means of grace, but in his life, Saul refuses to follow God. The story comes to an end that in this battle, Saul was surrounded and pursued by the enemy soldiers. His soldiers were His soldiers were running away in fear, in a rout. The only one left was his armor bearer. Saw his own sons die. Defeat and despair surrounded him. And Saul, who came to this battle with doom pronounced, now despairs of his life. What happens next is very troubling. To be sure, I shudder to even begin to imagine the horrors of war that Saul went through. We are well protected from that, and and because of that, I want you to feel the weight of what Saul went through. And he also faced the very real possibility that if he was captured alive, that he would face torture, humiliation, and then painful death. But as is characteristic of Saul, instead of crying out to God in his distress, even at the threat of his very life, he does not. In life and now in facing death, Saul didn't turn to God. You don't hear that at all. Instead, he took his own life. He turned to his armor bearer first and asked him to thrust him through with his sword. And when he refused, Saul fell on his own sword, committing suicide, bringing his life to an end. As I said, this is very troubling. It's appropriate that we pause here and just think about the subject of suicide and what the Bible says about it. It's difficult because God's own commandments, right in the Ten Commandments, is you shall not commit murder. And that includes the murder of yourself, or what we call suicide. Because of this, some have but I'll say mistakenly taught that a person who commits suicide cannot be saved. You might 
remember that in, uh, in the, the movie of Martin Luther, there's this dramatic moment where, where there's a burial that is not allowed within the, within the cemetery of the church because that person committed suicide. And by the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, that soul was damned. He could not be saved. Why? Well, because of that Roman Catholic position that to enter into heaven, you had to be clean from all of your sins. And if you ended your life with a sin, there was no cleansing for that. There was no possibility of redemption. That's why I say it's mistaken, because honestly, no one will ever die perfectly clean of all of their sins. We believe we are cleansed and justified by our faith in Jesus Christ. It's on the basis of his righteousness that we are saved, not by our cleanness. And I say this because it helps us to understand the tragedy that sometimes does happen in this life. It helps us to maybe soften our words and our approach to give comfort to those who are facing this very hard and troubling situation. For I know of examples of of those that I, I trust have been genuine believers who fell under either mental illness or severe crushing depression, struggling so much that they took their own lives. Let me be clear, we do not believe this is the unforgivable sin. And I would hasten to add that if you yourself struggle with thoughts of suicide, that I urge you to please talk to someone about that, to seek help from the Lord, from your family, from your church and Christian friends. Talk about the reasons of your fear or your depression. But for Saul, the suicide is just one more act consistent with his faithlessness. As I commented, he's been surrounded by those means of grace. He had access to the public worship of God at the tabernacle. He, He could go to the priests for leading of God there. He had God's own anointing to be king and the spirit of the Lord to, had come upon him. But he consistently ignores the means of grace that were there. He consistently chose to go his own way rather than following the obedience of the, following an obedience to the Lord's command. He decided to act in ways that were to his own advantage instead of the glory of God. And in the end, in a sense, he seals his rebellion against God by taking his own life. 
But not so, Jonathan. While this is a grievous portion of the chapter, there is glory in Jonathan's life and in his death. And I want you to see the gospel that comes through in just this simple recording of Jonathan's death. It's told without any commentary. We don't know much about what happens. It tells the scene. Soldiers are on Mount Gilboa. The men of Israel have fled or have been slain there. It says that the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And then that the Philistines had killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua, Saul's sons. Later, when David learns about this, he wrote a song of lament for Jonathan, and interestingly, for Saul. Lord willing, we will someday come to that. It's called the Song of the Bow. It was right to lament these deaths, and particularly for David to lament Jonathan's death. Because Jonathan had been a true and faithful friend to David. I want you to remember this about Jonathan. Much like we've done some remembering of Saul, remember this about Jonathan. After David's victory against Goliath, Jonathan was the first to stand with David, to rejoice, to, uh, to, to come beside this unknown what might be perceived as an upstart to come beh- come beside him and to support David. He lent to David his royal uh, personage, in a sense, his name, his authority, putting his reputation on the line. He supported him with equipment, giving him what he needed to, to be a soldier. Then throughout his life, I've described how he aligned himself with David, even though he knew that David would be the next king. Not Jonathan, David. And he willingly laid that aside in favor of what God wanted. And isn't that the point? That Jonathan had fixed his eyes on what God wanted. And as he fixed his eyes on that, it became what he wanted as well. And having fixed his eyes on that, he ran with endurance the race that was set before him. He was faithful to the very end. Even though it cost him the trust of his father and set him at odds with King Saul. And even though it went against Saul's plan for a hereditary dynasty that would mean that Jonathan would be the next king, and even though he suffered his father's disapproval, he aligned himself with, with David Really, he aligned himself with God. And in doing so, he proved to be a faithful friend to David in his hour of need. 
warning him of the king's plan to kill him, helping him to escape, going to him to comfort him in his exile, to counsel him as to what he should do. This is Jonathan, the king's son. And then think of this. While aligning himself with David, Jonathan did still remain a son and a subject of Saul's. And in this passage, we find Jonathan faithful to this divine providential appointment for him. The Philistines invaded. Jonathan could have let matters take their course. He could have stepped aside and let God's judgment fall upon his father. But he didn't. He stood against the enemy. He didn't hide from the danger of the battle, even to the point of laying down his life. One commentator has put it this way. In this hopeless fiasco, Jonathan was Jonathan was where God assigned him at his father's side. It's grievous, but I uh, I prayed today that that what would come through is not the grief of the death of a faithful man, but the glory of that faith that sees him through to the end. He was not perfect. No man or woman ever has been or will be saving our Savior Jesus, but he was faithful. Genuinely and perseveringly holding to a course that the Lord had given to him. A course that embraced all the days of his life. Even this fiasco of serving God's anointed king much like David has acknowledged him over and over again. His father, and one who has become crazy in his rebellion against God and his hatred towards David. And he does so even though it cost him his life. 
well, here's the gospel and here's the glory in this passage. As I said, this is what I pray comes through. There's a glorious lesson in Jonathan about faith and about faithfulness. The New Testament, Hebrews says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And Paul elsewhere calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. The difficulty that we face, though, is that with the eyes of this world, what we often see are the troubles and the trials and the, the fears and the persecution and the mockings and the depression and the temptations. It's all too easy to give in to the temptations that so easily entangle you. It is far too easy to give up and to give up your watchfulness against those sins, whatever they may be. Or our enemy would try to convince you to give up and to give in in all of these circumstances. And in despair... Much like Saul, it is far too easy to, in a sense, chuck it all. For what? For what? Well, what is argued outside of the light of faith is this very dark place. A darkness that reasons that there has to be something better than going on through whatever you're going on day after day after day. But Jonathan stood faithful. Faithful to the end. Despite the incredible trying position that he was in. While there is an element of tragedy in this, when Jonathan died, he did so full of faith and faithful to the end. Pilgrim's Progress describes the end of a character named Faithful, one who was walking beside the main character, Christian, And his end, from a worldly perspective, seems to be distressing and discouraging and even terrifying. He is caught up in the the world of Vanity Fair. He is imprisoned. He is falsely accused and tried and then, then burned to his death. From a worldly perspective, it's, it is terrifying. But what Christians saw is glorious. For faithful's end is that the chariots of God come down and carry him off to the celestial city. And that is the reward for everyone trusting in Jesus Christ. And that reward is yours not because you can grin and bear it 
or that you can build yourself up and persevere to the end in and of your own strength. No, it's because, because God has taken hold of you. And by faith in him, you can overcome. That's one way that, it, that is described of, of those in the, that hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, those who are, are faithful and full of faith. And those, are, those aren't exactly synonymous. They're connected. Faith has to do with our, our, our believing in Jesus Christ and trusting in him. Being faithful is the outworking of that, of that believing to the end, of persevering to the end. But think of what the book of Hebrews says. And I read it earlier just to get it back in your memory. We love to hear the stories of those men and women who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched fires, and it goes on for several verses with those glorious accounts of victory and of deliverance. And we say, uh, yeah, that's, that's faith, and that's, uh, that's what I aspire to. May God grant us that same faith and that same deliverance. But the account goes on, and it's the account of the faithful. It's the account of faith. Women, excuse me, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Others had the trial of mockings and scourging and chains and imprisonment, being stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain with the sword, and so on. And it goes on and it elaborates not the stories of deliverance in this life, but of faith, of faith in the midst of what may be a fiasco in this life. And worse, the second set of examples come to a bad end. And yet the author of Hebrews includes them as those who overcame. In fact, the author says of them, they obtained a better resurrection of whom the world was not worthy. They obtained a good testimony. And so too, Jonathan, by faith, was faithful to the end. He overcame. And in this light, the gospel does come through in this very distressing passage. For by faith, you overcome as well. Not by your own works, not by your own righteousness, but by faith. By faith, God will enable you to be faithful to the end. This text, along with Hebrews 11, tells a story that has happened over and over again and will until Christ comes again. Some face the real possibility of torture and death at the hands of persecutors. Closer to home, you face troubles and hardship that weigh down your hearts and your minds under a dark shroud of fear and anxiety, bringing even sometimes the fear of death itself. 
Jesus has warned us that those who would follow after him would indeed face these trials, persecution. But by faith, by faith, you overcome. By faith, Jonathan refused to give up the race until he had reached the very end, even though it meant his death. And I'll suggest that Hebrews gives the key. After telling of these men and women of faith, in chapter 11, it goes on immediately in chapter 12 to say, therefore, therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, having our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus, not on yourself, not on your own strength, not on your own plans or your own righteousness, but on Christ. There's no way that you can beat your chest and say, Semper Fi, in your own strength, as if you can do it. Rather, faithfulness to the end comes by that life-giving and life-sustaining connection that you have to Jesus. For it is life-giving and life-sustaining. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Each day look to him in his word, and in his promises, each day following, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to cry out to God, even when you have no intelligent words to offer. Each day seek God's presence in whatever the trial is that you face, even if it be the valley of the shadow of death. And Each day take hold of every opportunity to nurture your faith through worship, through fellowship with the people of God, through those who are on that path with you to the celestial city. In these ways, fix your eyes on Jesus. And in these ways, by faith, you overcome, persevere to the end. Simplify. pray. Lord our God, what a glorious telling the tragic situation. What a glorious telling of a faithful man who perseveres to the end of his life exactly where you placed him. God, we often scratch our heads at your providence and wonder why, oh God, have you placed me here? Why, oh God, do I have these trials to go through? Why, oh God, do I day by day suffer in this darkness? In the midst of that, oh Lord, I pray that the examples of of the faithful before us would encourage us to run that race. 
But even more than those faithful examples, I pray that your gospel would, would breathe faith and hope into us. Lord, it is only by your grace that we persevere. And it is only by your sustaining spirit that, that we have the hope to, to stand in the day of trouble. So, Lord, I pray that the faith that you give would be a faith that is seen day by day, that we would nurture it day by day as we grasp those means of grace that you have given to us. Sustain us, O Lord, so that we too would persevere to the end. And even in saying that, O Lord, it is by faith that we we pray it, believing that you will never, ever leave off the work of your hands and your children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with Psalm 68F. There are many psalms that speak of our trials. There are many songs that speak of the end of the wicked. We've sung some of those already today. I want to close, though, with a song of glory and of triumph. These are words that are ours, that are yours. O God, you're awesome from your throne. Israel's own God is he who gives his people strength and power. O let God blessed be. Stand and worship our God who saves us. Psalm 68F.